0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee-Olivest. As regular listeners are aware, this podcast is a historical project designed to help us understand patriarchal systems, both in their origins and in their present-day impact. While undertaking this work, we often find ourselves rooted in the past, even as we gaze towards the future, toward creating a better, more equitable world for those around us. And on today's episode, I'm grateful to be sitting down with a guest who not only shares in this mission, but who embodies its spirit so well, gender economist Katika Roy. As the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee, Katika is driven by a passion to eradicate economic inequality and to champion the rights of refugees, women, and children. While pursuing this passion, Katika has written numerous articles about intersectional gender equity for different national media platforms and uses storytelling and data stitching to create a common calling toward achieving gender equity. Today, Katika is one of LinkedIn's 2022 top voices for gender equity and serves as the CEO of Pipeline, an award-winning company that uses advanced technology to make intersectional gender parity a reality in our lifetime. It was such a joy to have her sit down with me and answer my questions in this fascinating fact-based discussion of gender economics. So please join me in welcoming our guest, Katika Roy. Welcome, Kadika Roy. We're so excited to have you here with us. And I wonder if we could start by having you introduce yourself to listeners and tell a little bit of your personal story, where you're from, and some things that inform the lens that you bring to your work.
1: You bet. Thank you so much for having me today. So I am a gender economist, which what that means for folks who may not know what a gender economist is is I look through the economy through the lens of gender and intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race, ethnicity, and age. I'm also the CEO and founder of Pipeline, which is an award-winning company that increases the financial performance of companies through closing the intersectional gender equity lens. We actually did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in equity, there's a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. So that's the model of our platform. More broadly, and I will I will go through this quickly, but you know, I think for me, as I think about why I started Pipeline and how I got here to recording this podcast today, is that I'm the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. And that had a lot to do with why I started Pipeline. So my mom was born in 1939, the year that World War II began on the Isle of Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Isles of the United Kingdom. And a year later, when France fell to the German army, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles. And so he actually evacuated them. And 5,000 children were evacuated. My mother was one of those children. And she was on the last ship off. And she was separated from her four older siblings and her mother. She was placed into an orphanage and adopted a year later. She actually came here to the United States when she was 21, when she was emancipated for equality and
0: opportunity. So that's my mom. (laughs) Wait, wait, I have one more question. So she was separated from her mom and her siblings. Yes. But did she ever find out what happened to them?
1: She did. So her mother... By way of actually my father helped, she was able to find one of her siblings. And then she and that sibling hired a private investigator and found the other three siblings as well as her mother. Her mother actually was later in years at that point and actually passed away before they were ever able to meet. But our family has been in contact with two of the siblings, the, the sister that my father found as well as the brother who is still actually living in Guernsey.
0: My goodness. I know that's a tangent, but that was just too fascinating and heartbreaking of a story to just not dig into that a little bit. That's so hard.
1: Yeah. You can just imagine what it would be like for a little girl, not yet two, to go to a new place afraid and alone all by herself and the, the impact that that might have combined with the The ability to get through that, the pure tenacity and grit to survive and make the most of what you could, given what you had.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Uh, And, and, you know, my father was a refugee, so he escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. He actually escaped. He was 34 at the time. He had been a, a POW in the Second World War lost all but four of his teeth to malnutrition at the age of 23. And when the Hungarian Revolution fell, he decided that it was better to risk his daughter's lives in pursuit of freedom than to commit their futures to living under communist rule. And so my three oldest sisters were born in Hungary. When they escaped, they were three, seven, and eight. And they walked across a minefield with the help of Hungarian freedom fighters crossed the border into Austria and arrived to a refugee camp. And less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956. And they were on that plane. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know, obviously, three of us were born in in Hungary, three born here in the United States. And the idea that... It took one person of a in a position of power who happened to be President Eisenhower to stand up and say, this will not happen, not on my watch, I will do something about this, that changed the trajectory of not only my family, but also my life and what was the opportunities that I would have. And that was a huge part in me actually starting Pipeline, was to take all of these, you know, opportunities that I had being born in the United States and to do something with them. That's one backstory. There's two other quick ones that I will tell, but those the the trifecta of those three is really how I arrived to, to 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 be a gender economist, to be a founder, to be here with you today. The second is that I am the youngest of six kids, five girls, one boy, and all the things that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for in her career, are the things that I saw manifest in my sister's lives. The, the lack of economic opportunity that impacted not only them, but also their children. So, things like you couldn't get a credit card as a woman without a male cosigner, you couldn't get a business loan as a woman without a male cosigner. You couldn't get an apartment as a woman without a male cosigner. All these things and more, they were a reality in my lifetime. And I watched this as a little girl thinking, this makes no sense. My My oldest sister came here at eight years old, didn't speak any English, and 10 years later graduated as the valedictorian of her high school class. Awesome. And, you know, basically barred from full participation in the economy. And then the last piece is that I am a breadwinner mom for a family of four, and I fought to be paid equitably twice and won. So I also had this experience. And and I'll, I'll tell you one story very quickly. But after my daughter was born, actually, when I was on maternity leave with her, my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fired. And when I came back from maternity leave the day after, I was asked to take on one additional team. So I had two teams, so I was managing. And then two weeks later, I was asked to take on a third team, which is great opportunity for a breadwinner mom, family of four. But my male colleague was one pay grade higher than I was. And he took on one team and also received additional compensation for that team. And I received nothing. And I thought, wait a second, this is not okay. So I went about re- and I, re- I tried to both talk to them and kind of realized over a course of conversation that probably not a lot was going to happen. So I thought there's got to be something that makes this illegal. So I did my research and found the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which happens to be the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed into law. And I called HR and said, This is a Lily Ledbetter better issue every time you pay me. The statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? Wow. (laughs) And to their credit, they increased my level, increased my pay and gave me back pay. So certainly it's a story of success. But what dawned on me is why did I have to research my rights in order to be treated fairly? And Mm -hmm. it was really in that moment that catalyzed ultimately founding Pipeline.
0: Yeah, okay, I have another question about that, just one detail. How sure. did you find out that your coworker was being paid more than you were? Did you just ask him? I did. Okay. Did you suspect it or how I just did that assumed. Go
1: down? Yeah, I just kind of assumed that they were paying him. Well, I knew that he was getting paid more as a base salary because he was one pay grade higher than I was and I had all of the information, the okay. salary information because I was a manager. Mm-hmm. The, but then I just said to him, "Hey, what are they paying you for that extra team?" And he told me, "Okay, okay." So I just asked. I just, yeah. I just made it was sort of like a presumptive yeah. close. I just assumed they were, and figured if they weren't, he would tell
0: me. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. Hey, I love that that was a success story, and that you found out that the law was on your side. But like you said, that means something's wrong with the system, right? That right. The, the system's not functioning the way it's supposed to. If there's a law to prevent that from happening, and the people aren't following the law and you have to spend your time and mm-hmm. you you were a mom at the time too, right? You're working full time and you're a mom <laughs> for you to spend extra time researching your rights and then fighting for for equitable pay, then the system isn't working, right? Okay. So what happened yeah. next?
1: After that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I stayed at that company for a while longer and then i worked at a couple other companies and then ultimately founded Pipeline. What I was really interested in uh, as a gender economist was not equity as the right thing to do. I have an MBA as well, but equity as a massive economic opportunity and how you operationalize that in companies. Because if we make equity the right thing to do, unfortunately, what happens is it becomes optional. It doesn't become... Mm -hmm a necessity for maximizing shareholder value which is what CEOs are held accountable for and of course we can also talk about the broader economy it can also become an us versus them narrative which isn't true because equity gender equity is not only about women it's about men and it's about everyone like it you know it it expands economic opportunity for everyone so i was very interested in both how we change the narrative So we can actually solve this problem and how we create solutions to catalyze our time toward equity.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit about how that is accomplished. What do you do at Pipeline and how does it move the needle? So I mentioned the research that Pipeline
1: started with that found that an increase in equity is tied to an increase in revenue. What we found in the market is that 96% of CEOs put equity in their top priorities. The issue is that only 22% of employees actually see it equity shared and measured. So you have this giant 74-point gap between what CEOs and companies say is important and the actual employee experience. Mm -hmm. This was my experience. The company I worked for was recognized for being committed to equity. I'm not going to say their name because it's not about the company. But and and yet my employee experience was that that commitment was not operationalized. And so my experience as an employee was that I had less faith in that company and their commitment because of my experience. So what Pipeline does is we are a recommendations engine. So if the company that I had worked for had Pipeline, I never would have had to advocate for myself to get paid equitably because Pipeline would have seen that there was a gap and would have made a recommendation to both HR as well as to my manager at the time, here's the gap, here's a range to actually close that gap. So, what we do, we are, we basically connect to cloud based HR systems like Workday, SuccessFactors, et cetera. There are five main decisions that companies make about their people, which is internal hiring, that's mobility, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. When companies go to make those decisions, they post a job requisition, they submit a pay proposal, They save a performance review as a draft. We actually, that then sends it basically a trigger to the pipeline platform. And we run those decisions through our algorithms. And if we find any inequity, we make a recommendation. So we're actually getting in front of the decisions. One of the things that we found is that there are three key decisions that companies make across their talent each year, which is performance, potential, and pay. So for the average Fortune 500 company that has about 60,000 employees, that's 180,000 opportunities to move toward equity each and every year. That's what we make
0: possible. Mm, I see. Okay, so... Just being a little bit of a cynic here, <laughs> like, do, do you ever feel like, I mean, companies say they value equity because that is the right thing to say, but doesn't that mean that they are having to pay their employees more? And so do you find that they are resistant to wanting to pay you know, half their employees as much as they're probably worth because it shrinks their margin?
1: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that we we haven't found that so much. To, to be honest, it's it's more about like the liability as some some of the questions. But you know, what's interesting about that is that what we have found is that it's not only women who are paid less. Mm. So when we look at pay, one of the things we're looking at is representation not only at the company level, but in functions and levels compared to what percentage of the pay gap they make up. And what that means is that we've closed gaps for men and women and not binary. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about creating equity for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think that there's often this false narrative where you're talking about like the profitability argument, like Mm -hmm you know that salaries unless you're a salesperson or sgna and the more that you can cut that the more profitable you can be that doesn't actually vet out in the data because you're also talking about things like productivity and in the broader economy sort of outside of companies as american taxpayers we all subsidize when people are not paid equitably like we all the economy suffers when people are not paid equitably and we don't have equity of opportunity I think there's a, a narrative that it is, well, I know it's not true, which is that we can choose whether or not we pay for people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We cannot. We can choose how we pay for them. We cannot choose whether or not we pay for them. Mm. And I can, can you, tell you, do you want some examples? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Yeah. So in the broader US economy, some of those examples, include that among people 65 and older, women are twice as likely to live in poverty and retirement than men. That the pay gap ties directly to that. Uh, We could close the Social Security savings gap by a third if we close the pay gap. And over 56% of children that are living in poverty are living in households headed by women. So not only are we leaving women behind, we are leaving the next generation behind. And to add some additional color to that after, well, I guess we're in an endemic now, but the economic downturn of the pandemic and the different conversations that have been had, some of the, there's been talk about childcare, which don't get me wrong, it is important, but there's a narrative there that is actually not true, which says that mothers can choose not to work. It's called the myth of secondary income, which is that mom's income is just for purses and shoes. It's not... (laughs) It's not for things like housing and healthcare and food and, you know, all the necessities. Mm -hmm. And here's what the data shows in the United States, 40% of households with children under the age of 18, moms are the breadwinners. There are 16 million breadwinner moms, they support 28 million children. So that is our future, 40% of our future labor force. And we actually did some research. And what we found was that the breadwinner mom pay gap is the largest pay gap of any cohort in the US workforce. It's 66 cents on the dollar. And then when you start to look at that through an intersectionality lens, so specifically gender plus race and ethnicity. So for black breadwinner moms, they have the largest gender pay gap of any women in the labor force, and it's forty-four cents on a dollar, and they support the majority of all black
0: children. Oh my gosh! So, so wait, this is sorry, just to yeah. make sure I'm clear. So this data is a little bit different than what I've seen because you're talking about breadwinner moms, breadwinner so, moms, as opposed to just the data I've seen, which is just you know women working and then broken working moms broken down by race. But to qualify as a breadwinner mom, that means they're making the majority. Yeah. Of the the income for the the family, yeah wow. so it's either
1: it's either the majority or all or all to be a sole breadwinner mom,
0: yeah, right, and so that's even more devastating because it is. oh my gosh, yeah, I was not aware of those numbers,
1: yeah, oh and gosh. we subsidize that, like you you we don't have a choice, yeah, whether or not we pay for people, we pay for them, so how do we want to pay? do we want to make an investment, and that ultimately benefits everyone this is why when we equate women's issues with gender equity as mm-hmm. synonyms it's not that's not true you know like gender equity women are part of the conversation and men are also part of the conversation and of course we can also talk about how gender equity impacts men too because there are very specific issues that are gender equity issues that negatively impact
0: men more than women and I would like to talk about that actually. So that would be a great thing to to talk about next.
1: Sure. so so I'll talk about two of them, and they're connected. One is that mental health is largely a men's issue. It's not only a men's issue, but it is largely a men's issue. so forty eight percent of working dads would like to stay home with their children. And there are two reasons that they don't do that. Identity, who will I be and isolation who will I connect with it's essentially our definition of what it means to be a man and what we see more broadly is from a mental health perspective and you look at things like mental health deserts and access to mental health and coverage from even if you have coverage from your healthcare provider that men are more adversely affected by mental health. They account for 79% of all suicides. They're more likely to die from mental health issues. And it's this idea of, I'm not supposed to get help. I'm not supposed to talk about what's happening in this. And we actually saw men's mental health decline during the pandemic. And so it's a real serious issue that we are not talking about, but we need to be talking about, which is both they want men Almost half of working dads would like to have a different role in their families and mental health. And this man box is really keeping them
0: stuck. Wow. So what can be done about that? I mean, I was just reflecting today again on I'm I'm rereading the book, We Should All Be Feminists by Adichie. And the quote on the back of the book that I was just looking at was saying, we need to raise our girls differently and we mm-hmm. need to raise our boys, boys differently, right? We need to raise the whole generation differently. And so that's been on my mind just today. But what would you say are some of the solutions?
1: In For helping? girls and boys? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so on the raising thing, I can talk a little bit about that. Let me talk about boys. I have one of each. I have a, a 15-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter. So for boys, there's a few things that we need to do. One is we need to raise them with different models of what it looks like to be a man. And one of the key ways to do that is through sports. So we often talk about the positive impact that sports has on women and girls. But what we don't talk about is the adverse impact that sports can have on men and boys so boys see this both as the imagery of professional sports that they see as well as their experience in the sports teams that they're on from a fairly young age which is that it's more about winning it's about domination it is this idea of like I'm not supposed to get help. I'm supposed to man up. I'm supposed to be a man. I'm not supposed to cry. And what we need to do is transform that culture of sports, both professionally and the NBA is actually one of the professional organizations that has taken steps to begin to combat that this, they they actually in the 2016 players agreement had a clause whereby They could investigate domestic violence, regardless of whether or not there were criminal charges. Major League Baseball and and the NFL have yet to follow suit. That's one, the imagery of what our boys see as both what what it's like to be a man, what it means to be a man, and the consequences of their behavior. And then the second piece is the culture in sports teams for boys, that it is should be less about winning because, quite frankly, from a math perspective, the majority of us will never be professional athletes, right? Mm-hmm. It's the very small percentage. Most of us do sports because it's healthy. and But the, that it's more about character. It's more about who you are and how you live your life. That's a really key part to changing the structure of what it's like to be a boy and grow up into a man. For girls, and it's so interesting because we do this to women in the workplace, like we have women's leadership programs and we're going to teach women. It's like women are not broken, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. the system is broken. We need to fix the system, right? Like we focus on teaching women negotiation. We focus on ending the uptick in their speech and applying for jobs. And it's like the other half of the story is that the system doesn't value them equitably. So for our girls... We need to teach them to recognize inequity and to be able to respond to it. And I'll give you two very concrete examples of how I did this with my daughter. So my daughter obviously is my youngest. And one of the things that I noticed when she was little that didn't happen with my son was that people complimented her on her looks from like, <laughs> like 18 months Literally. old, right? Yeah. Yep. And, and so I responded and then taught her to say, so when people say, oh, she's so cute, I would say, and she's smart too. And I taught her to say that, like when she could respond to say, people say, oh, you're so cute. And she'd say, and I'm smart too, because I wanted <laughs> to, one, like get away from this, my worth is in my looks, et cetera. Also for her in her brain it's called schema, but basically to create these pathways whereby when she's complimented for her looks, she automatically thinks, and I'm smart too. Hmm, So that was one. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece, when she got older, all these, what we call like microaggressions or biases. So things like interrupting women or women's ideas not being heard. I wanted my daughter to understand that when someone interrupts her, it's not because she didn't say things in the correct way or she just needed to tweak that. It's because like, you know, it, that had nothing to do with her. That is about the other person. So what we taught her was that when she is interrupted, she says, excuse me, I'm speaking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but she is not to be interrupted, that her words and her ideas have value And that's exactly what she said. She's 11 and she says, excuse me, I'm speaking.
0: Good for her. Yeah, that's fantastic.
1: So those are a couple of examples of things that we need to do differently with our girls and boys.
0: Yeah, I love that. So another question that I wanted to ask you about is the specific economic implications of improving gender equity not just in the workplace, in a specific company, but in other areas of society like politics? You mentioned social security earlier and like higher education across the board. What are some of those implications?
1: Yeah, so what we, I'm gonna take a step back and then I will answer your question just to give people a frame of reference. So from 1970 to 2016, Women added $2 trillion to the US economy through their increased labor force participation. And we saw almost, not all, but almost all, it was $1.4 trillion of that gain wiped out during the pandemic. And we're still about halfway. We've improved a little bit. So this is, gender equity is not only an issue, a social issue, it's actually a massive economic opportunity. And right now, the United States sits at a $3.1 trillion opportunity to improve our GDP through closing the equity gap. And that generally takes the role of increased labor force participation, closing the wage gap, and then some other things like occupational segregation, et cetera. But the other piece around the economics is that gender equity is something that cuts straight through the U.S. economy, right? So, for instance, in occupations or sectors that have pay gaps, almost all of them do, right? 90-some-odd percentage of, of occupations have pay gaps. We actually subsidize... That pay gap, the American tax, if you're an American taxpayer, you offset that, but you are paying for that. Right. So that's one way to understand that. And then the other piece that I would add to that is if you just look at the last jobs report in the beginning of July and then also the number of jobs open, et cetera. So we currently sit at a five point four million person gap between the number of jobs that are open and the number of people who are looking for jobs. There's about there's almost two jobs open for every one person looking for a job. And yet we have 760,000 women missing from the labor force since the beginning of the pandemic. Hmm. If we just bring them back, we mm-hmm. could begin to close that gap. So it is really an opportunity, it's not just the right thing to do, it's an economic opportunity for everyone. There are obviously other ways that we pay for this from immigration to criminal justice and so on, but those are just a few uh, ways that we pay that. The other thing I wanna talk about very quickly from an economic perspective, because if you look at it from a labor economics perspective, you have education attainment, labor force participation and wages. We often talk about wages as the gender pay gap, that 83 cents on the dollar that's coming into women's wallets. But there are two additional ways that the wage gap actually comes out. It's not only the money coming in to women's wallets, it's that women have more money coming out of their wallets. It's the three-legged stool. And uh, let me go into those two really quickly. One is student loans and the second is the pink tax. Women are 57% of all college graduates, and yet they hold two thirds of all student loans. There's almost a 10 point gap between their college their rate of acquiring bachelor's degree and higher and the per percentage. Yeah. So the student loan conversation is a gender equity conversation. Yeah. And the reason why that happens, there's two. One is that the gender pay gap starts in college. So women have to borrow more money earlier and they're less able to pay it off faster. And the second is that, which is the importance of public education is that, Parents are less likely to financially support their daughters getting degrees than their sons. I was going to ask, like, it can't be that, right? <laughs> it really is. is that? that is the importance of publicly funded education. That if in, mm-hmm. in developed countries like the United States, where we fund public education, it off like, that is critically important as a gender equity lever. That's one. The the other piece around the pink tax, right? So 50% of the time women pay 7% or more for items. So that could be everything from dry cleaning to shaving cream to whatever, anything that's gendered. One of the pieces of that is the gender tariff gap, which is that on average... Uh, Like, gender is actually written as a statistical calculation, as part of the statistical calculation for tariffs for footwear and apparel. So, women on average pay a 15.1% tariff, and men pay an 11.9% tariff.
0: Stop that. What? (laughs) So, you. What? Sometimes
1: men pay more, sometimes women pay more, but on average, women pay more. Why? Like, how do they get... It's written into the statistical calculation. So, for instance, you could have a hiking boot or a t-shirt that are same thing. One is for men, one is for women. The tariffs are different. So this is one of the sneaky (sighs) ways that gender inequity is baked into our economic system.
0: Wow. Wow. I'm like having a hard time processing this because, I mean, as we've talked about, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast because it goes chronologically, mm-hmm. the, the first season especially, and we kind of trace the evolution of the yeah. gender systems. And since women were not even, like you said earlier in this conversation, not even allowed to really participate in the yeah. economy, not allowed to participate in higher education or in politics. They didn't even have their own money until recently. So how are they being taxed at a higher rate than men if they have never had as much money? And very recently, relatively speaking, didn't even have any money. Like in, under the laws of coverture, all of their money was their husband's. So I'm just thinking, right. like, how did it change from women had no money and no participation in the public sphere to now an assumption that they would have money to pay? How?
1: I, it, I don't think it's an assumption to pay is this we often believe that public policy is gender neutral oh yeah it isn't isn't. it's gender ignorant Mm. because as you've made in your you know the points that you made in your podcast the system was not built for women Mm -hmm. or by women (laughs) or by women it was it wasn't and so all of the when we assume that it's gender neutral without doing investigation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you do the investigation, sometimes you find that it's gender ignorant. The gender tariff gap is one example of that. Amazing. And there's actually a pretty easy solution. There's two solutions to that. One is just remove gender from the statistical calculation, and the second is just to use this the lower
0: tariff rate mm-hmm. across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's crazy.
1: We we tend to think that it's just like this piece or that piece and not really understanding what the data says, that the systems are not set up to value women equitably, you know, and how critically important that is if we're actually going to get to equity.
0: Yeah. I mean, and going back to one thing that you said a few minutes ago, and I, I hope this is okay, but we were chatting before we started this episode about your education and you told me something about your education, and then your mom at oh, Oxford, yeah. because I feel like that's relevant, right? Like you, this is a mind-blowing revelation that you just dropped on me. Th- that girls are supported by their parents less, um, less well, likely, less yeah, for higher education, <laughs> fin- financially for higher education. But that shouldn't surprise me because I mean, I'm thinking of Virginia Woolf watching all her brothers go to Oxford, and she went to King's College, which is still a great college in London, but it wasn't Oxford. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, so many of the the authors that we read, that was the case. They watched their mm-hmm. brothers go away to school. They were homeschooled, or went to, you know, just not as good of schools. and didn't have the opportunities their their brothers had. So it shouldn't surprise me that that is still we're still on that path, really. That's a vestige. So, do you mind sharing that personal detail from your own life? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my mom, yeah, I
1: talked about her history, but she was British. And she really wanted to attend Oxford and and study the classics. And my my grandfather was well-meaning, but this was in the late 50s. And he said, well, girls don't get an education. They become nurses or secretaries. So, you know, you can pick one of those. And so when I was invited to apply to attend Oxford, I knew this story from my mother. And one of the reasons that I went was actually, you know, sort of <laughs> closing that loop from what had been denied to my mother over 30 years before. And and it was a full circle story. And then she passed away a couple of years ago. So we actually started a scholarship program in her name to support girls attending that education. But really that idea that she was told, well, girls don't do that. <laughs> you know, the other thing I that folks are maybe not as aware of is So I've been in the working world almost 30 years and just a few years shy of it. And I was a political science major, undergrad, legal studies emphasis, intern in D.C. And I remember thinking, like, you know, I was a women's rights, you know, I, I had been educated about all of that. And I just thought, I think the world is equitable. I don't think there's any issues anymore. Of course, the first time that I fought to be paid equitably, I learned how naive I had been and experienced as a great teacher. However, there's one really key mechanism that has happened in the workforce where we, I think, because we haven't heard about it, and this has changed in probably the last five years, or at least begun to change, is binding arbitration, which is that we probably haven't come as far as we think we have. We just don't know it because in 1992 the Supreme Court actually decided a case which tipped the scales the in employer's favor in terms of using binding arbitration in employee agreements. So you don't need, people think you don't have to sign it. You don't have to sign a binding arbitration agreement contractually by accepting a job you can be bound by by binding arbitration clauses. And kind of what that means for people who may not be familiar is that you actually have to go into into arbitration versus a public court of law. And that Mm. is administered by an arbitrator who may or may not be a lawyer, who may or may not have to follow the labor laws that were actually Mm. designed to protect employees in in the US and almost 40% of employees in the United States are actually covered by binding arbitration clauses. And the thing that's really insidious about binding arbitration is that typically the employer pays the arbitrator And they are more likely to win. And the more times they go to that arbitrator, the higher the win rate they have. Mm -hmm. And it's completely confidential. So you have no Seventh Amendment right to file, you know. So this this is one of the things where it has been a real issue uh, in terms of us finding out
0: what is actually happening in the labor force. Wait, okay, so you... How is that legal is my question. I'm like trying to think of a There's a
1: Supreme Court so the so uh, binding arbitration was originally started to essentially unclog the courts for commercial disputes. So if two commercial entities had uh, a dispute instead of going to the courts, they would settle it through this, you know, it's essentially you would think kind of two somewhat equal entities, commercial entities would could actually, you know, solve this issue but then there was a case in 1992 which really tipped the scales in terms of employers being able to use that and since that time it's just grown exponentially. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> so you're not saying that it puts the onus on the worker to research the laws like you did when you we you found the mm-hmm. lead better law, but even you're saying that even if you found the law that you could go to them and they could they could just say, well, Even, that doesn't really apply in this situation or you don't.
1: If you made, if you had a claim uh-huh. and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm just going to, if you had a, like mine, my experience of fighting to be paid equitably, I never filed a lawsuit or made a claim. Uh-huh. I never, I, I, I just stuck up for myself. That was, is a separate issue. But if you actually filed that claim you would because you're bound by by this agreement this binding arbitration agreement it's not not actually public it's not in a court of law you're actually settling it behind closed doors uh-huh
0: yeah wow that's really important to know just for listeners to ask those questions right when you're yeah. taking a new job just find out what the practices are at the company that you're joining
1: yeah and if people they can search my name and binding arbitration on Google and I've written about it and what you can actually do both, I've made recommendations for companies <laughs> mm-hmm. and also just so folks are educated about what that looks like for them because people think, oh, I have to sign this agreement, but you don't Okay, just by, just by virtue of, you know, accepting an offer. That's an agreement,
0: wow. right? So, okay. The last question I have for you, Kataka, is... Something that you had written about was the lack of data driven analysis within the current discourse around gender economics. So what's driving that lack of, of data driven analysis? Checkbox diversity. Hmm. What does so that
1: mean? so companies spend eight billion dollars on gender equity solutions, largely implicit bias or unconscious bias training. And it has, the interesting thing about that is it has, it either has no impact on moving toward equity, or it can actually, unconscious bias training can actually reinforce stereotypes. So it makes it worse. So just like we wouldn't manage our businesses without data and metrics that actually move that company forward, we really need to look at, equity and a decision-making around equity from a data-driven perspective. So rather than what I check box diversity, you know, everybody's gone through this unconscious bias training. Everyone has gotten these things. What we need to do is to get in front of the decisions that we're making. So, you know, internal hiring, pay, performance, potential and promotion, ensure that those decisions are equitable before they're made. And also we need to change the narrative to instead of just social issue or the right thing to do, it's actually a massive economic opportunity that one of the key levers that CEOs in particular can pull to maximize shareholder value is equity, is actually moving toward equity and using technology such as pipeline we actually now have the opportunity to do that and do it at scale. Just to give you one quick data point, what we have found across our implementations at Pipeline is that companies improve equity by 67% in the first three months on the platform. So there's a, when you take all of those little decisions together and you're using technology at scale, There's a huge opportunity for us to leap forward in our pursuit of equity. One of the things we often talk about is that the question isn't, can we close the gender equity gap in our lifetime? We can. We have the technology to do it. We have the ability to do it. The question is, will we choose to?
0: Hmm. Well, that's kind of inspiring, I guess. That's, I mean, there's, there's room for optimism in, mm-hmm. in looking at that, that it can be done at least. But I guess on the other hand, it's disheartening sometimes when you watch people make choices that.
1: <laughs> that well, I think we have to keep talking there. about it because if yeah. we keep talking about it and we keep raising awareness, the reason why the narrative and, the, and talking about it and stories and data together matter is because if we think about the problems differently, we will think about the solutions differently. Mm-hmm. And we will get to solutions that actually achieve equity in our lifetime.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'm, I I learned so much, Kataka I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your your expertise with us on this topic. As a historian, I mean, I was an English undergrad and then my grad school was in the humanities. I, I read old books all day. And so hearing about, I mean, I, I care so much about gender parity in the world, but I really have not spent any time at all looking at gender economics. And so, I mean, this was an incredibly valuable conversation for me and for our listeners. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me
0: huge thanks again to katika roy for joining us and sharing all of this eye-opening information clearly our economic systems as they exist today are not designed to benefit women they weren't designed by women with women in the room or even with women in mind but to see courageous, well-informed advocates like Katika going out into the world and fighting for gender equity gives me hope that someday we'll see an economy that values and works for all of us. So thank you to Katika for this inspiring labor and to all of you for listening and joining us today and daring to imagine a more equitable economy along with us. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibus for our social media. And be sure to tune in again next Tuesday when we'll be hearing from three fantastic guests, Monica Rogers of The Revelation Project, Shelby Neal of LDS Changemakers, and one wonderful anonymous contributor who will each be sharing their stories of internalized misogyny and a jaw-dropping moment of feminist awakening. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.